All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. Making your way back to your seats. And as you do that, if you'll open your Bible to Psalm chapter 96. Psalm chapter 96. When you've arrived there at Psalm chapter 96, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Psalm chapter 96. And this is what, this is what the psalmist writes. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim His salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among the peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in, in the splendor of His holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before Him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this psalm of praise, God, I pray that you would fill us with awe and worship and wonder for who you are. That we would be moved to worship and praise because you, you alone are worthy and you are good. God, I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength as I seek to preach your word to your people. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I've titled this morning's sermon, Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. We're in the midst of this series throughout the summer, a summer in the Psalms, taking different types of songs, looking at different things, and hopefully it's been an encouragement to you. I know it's been an encouragement to me, and when you think of the Psalms, one of the first things, at least for me, that pops into my, my mind is this idea of worship. You know, the Psalms, we, uh, we, we've been working on it some with our girls, and we have them repeat, you know, what is a Psalm anytime we read one? Because we were reading through them, and sometimes they'll say at the beginning what they are, and we were talking about how Psalms can be songs to be sung. Uh, they can be poetry. Uh, the Psalms can be all sorts of of different things, but for me, when I think of psalms, I typically think of worship, and so it seems fitting that we would take a song that deals with worship, and that's what Psalm 96 is all about, about singing to the Lord. You know, in his book, The Explicit Gospel, it came out in like 2012, Pastor Matt Chandler um, from the Village Church there in Texas, he wrote this book called Explicit Gospel, and, and in it, he wrote these words that I found fascinating. He said, we, we are worshiping people. Worship is an innate desire, an intrinsic impulse 
wired into us by God himself. And he says this is a gift of God. And you see, what Pastor Chandler is picking up on is that you and I, we are built to worship. We are made to be worshiping beings. And so what that means is that every one of us worships. The question is not if a person worships. The question is, what does a person worship? Because we are innately, we are built with impulses and wired to worship something. We are a worshiping people. And when God first created Adam and Eve and placed that impulse in them, the the impulse was meant to lead them to worship God and God alone. But you see, the problem came in that sin has tainted the expression of every human being's worship. Psalm 58 verse 3 tells us, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. That's what we talk about, this idea of original sin, that David said it like this in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Basically that with Adam being our representative head, that whatever he did mattered for all of us. And so when Adam sinned, we, because we are Adam's offspring, inherited that sin nature. And so we come out of the womb ready to sin. We come out of the womb ready to worship, but to worship anything other than God. So what we see in this world is people worshiping all sorts of things. You see it. You know it. People will worship their job. They will devote themselves to it. They find their identity in it. They let it determine the course of their life and their actions and how they live. They let it determine how they interact with their family and how they interact with their friends. They want to make it to the top. They want to make it to the top no matter what it takes. And so they worship their job. Some people worship sports teams. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've met that person that can tell you every statistic for every player who has ever played on that team in the history of the organization. Don't ask them to name all 12 disciples, though. But they can tell you the stats. People worship political leaders. I I shouldn't have to argue my case too hard for that one. You can just look back over the last election cycle and you will see that people worship political leaders. But people worship themselves. They believe and act as if they are the only thing that matters. They make decisions based on what they think will bring them the most ease and pleasure and comfort. But here's another one. People worship spirituality. See, they don't actually worship Jesus. They worship how much they appear to worship Jesus. It's all about presenting yourself as a disciple rather than actually being a disciple. And still, there are some who have made this choice that does not make sense to the rest of the world. They have chosen to worship this Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. He wasn't white. This Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. He didn't have any fame. He didn't have any prestige. He didn't have any notoriety. He didn't have a book deal, even though he helped write the best-selling book that's ever been. They didn't build him a mega church, so he preached on the side of a mountain. He did not live a life of luxury, but he died a criminal's death. But what makes him worthy is that he did not stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And there are some who have placed all their hope in this man, and so they worship him. If you hadn't picked up, I was talking about Jesus. Every one of us will worship something, because we're built to worship. But ultimately, we were built to worship 
God. He's designed us in such a way that we would worship Him in every season, in every moment. And and I want to be clear, there is never, never a moment in your life when you are not worshiping something. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said it like this, he said, All places are places of worship to a Christian, wherever he is. He ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. I like that. That we ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. You and I must understand that we are built to worship and we will always worship. But we also have to reckon as Christians that, not even just as Christians, just for the world, that the world is commanded to worship God. And I want to stress that, that worship isn't optional. Our worship of God is not something we choose. We choose whether or not we can do it. See, in our psalm that we just read, Psalm 96, there's a threefold command that we see at the beginning. It says to sing to the Lord, sing a new song to the Lord. It says it again in verse 2. Then you get down to verses 7 and 8, and it says, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people. So we're commanded in this verse to sing and to ascribe to the Lord the glory and the worship and the honor that He is due. We are expected, we are called, and we are commanded to worship God. But for David, I want you to note that this was not a burdensome command. It was a privilege to sing to the Lord. It was a privilege to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It was His delight to do these things. And We need to make sure that we are not seeing our worship of God as a burden, but rather as a delight. I know that might sound pretty simple. That might be like, well, yeah, Michael, we we get that. That's why we're here on Sunday mornings, to worship God. It's not a burden. We like being here. But but I honestly think we need to be, be transparent about that because there are times when we see gathering together as to worship as a burden. There are times when we would rather do anything else than bring ourselves here on a Sunday morning. And maybe it's just me, and that's fine. Then maybe it's just your pastor. Believe it or not, there are times I don't want to be here. There are times when spending time with the Father and worshiping through prayer and scripture reading, it just seems more like a burden than a delight. But we have to remember that worship is never meant to be a burden. And it will cease to be a burden when we remember and genuinely believe that God and God alone is worthy. So here's my aim this morning. I'm going to have to work for it because y'all staring at me. So my aim this morning and the purpose of this song that we just read is to call us to worship God and God alone. It's a call to sing to him and to sing to him alone. And I want to make mention of this at the beginning. My aim is not, at least this morning, I don't think it's the full aim of the text. The, the, the goal is not to tell us what worship should look like, but boy, do I want to. Boy, do I want to tell us what worship should look like. Because I think, if I'm being honest, I think we've tamed it so much. So let me just say a couple things, and you can, you can rest. I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to get on my high horse, and I'm not going to get off till I feel better. All right? Let me just say a couple things about worship. Worship is meant to be expressive. It is. 
Psalm 47, right? Clap your hands. All you people shout for God with, with jubilant cries. Psalm 95 tells us that come, let's worship, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Psalm 149 says, let's praise him. Let's praise him with dancing. Let's make music with a tambourine and a lyre. Worship is meant to be expressive. It's meant to be be more than just this monotone repetition of words that are on a screen. It is meant to flow out of us because our God is that amazing. It's expressive, not for expressive sake, but it's expressive because of what we believe about God and what we believe should move us so much that we honestly can't contain ourselves. I don't know where we made worship this stoic. I do know exactly where in history we made, actually we made worship this stoic, silent treatment, and that's its own thing. But what I see in Scripture is a picture of, of jumping and shouting and dancing and celebrating. And perhaps the problem isn't that the problem isn't necessarily that we don't want to worship. Maybe the problem is we don't believe enough truth about God to worship like that. Because when we genuinely understand that we are people destined for hell and yet God stepped in and redeemed us from the curse of death, sin, and slavery to Satan and he redeemed us and made us a people, I don't know how we're silent about that. I've seen some of you watch basketball games with more enthusiasm than I see on a Sunday morning. I've seen some of y'all get more excited about books that you've read than about the Jesus who saved your soul. And I'm not trying to come after you. Maybe I am. I don't know. But all I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that our worship has to be something because our God is somebody. But again, that's not the point of this text. I feel a little better. What this text calls us to is the unadulterated worship of God. This text teaches us a little bit about why we worship and how this worship should shape our lives. So there are four truths I want you to see about worship. Here's the first one that I want you to see this morning. We worship because God is worthy. We worship because God is worthy. Look again at verses 1 through 6 there. David records this. I know it doesn't say it's David. I'll explain how we know it's David in just a minute. But verses 1 through 6 say, Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous work among all peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We worship because God is worthy. Now, there are a few things worth noting in these first six verses which bear our attention as we consider this idea that we worship because God is worthy. You see, David tells us a little bit about why God is worthy. And so first, notice how the psalm begins there in verse 1 where it says, Sing a new song. To the Lord. Let the earth sing to the Lord. Sing a new song. Well, what does a new song mean? Well, you see, Psalm 96 is interesting. The reason that it's interesting is because it's a psalm that actually comes from another section of Scripture. You see, Psalm 96, 97, 98, and Psalm 100 are all found in 1 Chronicles 16. 
It's one song of praise. And what, what, what happened in the Psalms is that they're a reshaping of that one song into multiple songs that was sung by David. It, they, were, they, were, they were sung by David's direction when the Ark of the Covenant came to Jerusalem and the tabernacle was de- dedicated at Mount Zion. So that's what First Chronicles 16 is about. The Ark of the Covenant has come to Jerusalem. David is there, and David dedicates that place to the Lord. It's Mount Zion. He dedicates the tabernacle, and, and he says, let's sing a new song. See, here's why that's significant, because the tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. It was, a tabernacle was a portable sanctuary, if you will. Right? We've joked all the time that New Breed feels more like the tabernacle than the temple. Right? We've been traveling around. We feel like the portable sanctuary. Maybe one day we'll be the temple. Uh, but it was a portable sanctuary. So wherever the car, Ark of the Covenant went, this portable sanctuary, the tabernacle, could be constructed and the Ark of the Covenant would, would dwell there. Now the Ark of the Covenant is significant because the Ark held the tablets with the Mosaic Law. They were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. But what the Ark represented and what God had said is that His presence would dwell with that Ark. So wherever the Ark of the Covenant was with the Mosaic Law inside of it, that's where God was. So it's significant that the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. And God is dwelling among His people in that holy place. And so when the Ark of the Covenant arrives, David dedicates this tabernacle in Jerusalem. He is dedicating the place where the glory of God would dwell among his people. So as part of that worship, David declares, in light of all this, let's sing a new song to the Lord. And the reason David says that is because God was doing something new among his people. Can I tell you something this morning, church? God is still doing something new every day. God is doing something new because God's mercies are new every day. I love how the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner notes, or what he says, he notes this. He says, the new song, he's talking about this new song that David's mentioning. He says, the new song, it's not simply a piece of new, uh, 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 simply a newly uh, composed piece, though it naturally includes such, but it's a response that will match the freshness of his mercies, which are new every morning. Brothers and sisters, every day that you wake up, God's mercies are new for you. That's got to be more than just a Bible verse that I throw out on Sunday mornings, that his mercies are new every morning. Do you realize the reason you woke up this morning and you are not in hell is because his mercy was new today? The reason God's hand has not departed from you, even when you sin, is because God's mercies are new today. The reason we are able to gather in this place and sing songs to our God and cry out to him in prayer, the reason we can lift high the great name of the matchless king, despite the fact that we are unworthy, is because God's mercy is new today. And what I'm trying to tell you is that every day God is worthy to be praised, because every day his mercy is new for you. But that might not be enough for you. David understands that. So David's going to give more reasons as to why God is worthy. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. You're like, I, I just don't feel like God's mercies are new. It's been tough. The days, days have been short. The nights have been long. I'm just struggling. Well, David wants to tell you another reason why, why God is worthy of our worship. Not only because his mercies are new every day. But because even with those new mercies, he has kept his promises of old. Look at verse 2. He says, sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. 
David believes that the Lord saves. He believes that God delivers. Therefore, David believes that God is worthy of worship. God is worthy because our God is a God of salvation and deliverance. Let me just tell you something as candidly as I can. If God never does anything else for you, if he never gives you anything else that you want, but he has given you salvation, he has given you everything you will ever need. And he is worthy of worship. Salvation is the greatest gift that God could give. And salvation alone should continuously stir our hearts to worship. Why? Because salvation is eternal. You see, I think for many of us, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack anybody. I'm just trying, I'm trying to apply this to your life and my life. I think for many of us, the problem comes with our worship because too often our worship is tied to the temporal. Our worship is tied to this world. Our worship is tied to the here and now. Let me say it another way. Too often, our worship is tied to whether or not we think God has acted like he should in this life. When things don't go our way, we refuse to worship. Now, for most of us, I don't think we're consciously making the decision to hold our worship hostage. I don't. I don't think most of us are like, you know what, God? You want me to sing this song on Sunday morning? You better do that thing that I want you to do. If not, I'm going to stand there. I'm just going to stare at everybody. I don't think that's what we do. We don't make this conscious decision to hold our worship hostage, but we end up holding our worship hostage. You know how we do it? We just complain. We complain all the time. Here's the test, right? When things don't go your way, are you more likely to complain or to praise? And if you're not sure, just ask the people around you. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. Because I know good and well some of y'all right when I said that had people pop into your mind. I guarantee you nobody thought of yourselves though. But you have people pop in, yep, that person complains all the time. All the time. But you know, the Bible warns about complaining. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Some would say without complaining. And the reason that we're called to avoid this is because complaining and worship cannot coexist. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying we can't be honest about struggles. We can't communicate hurts and pains and questions and despondencies and depression and doubt. I'm not saying we, we should talk about those things. But what I am saying is when you are a person who, are, who is marked more by complaining than by praise, something might be off. Because complaining and worship cannot coexist. Because complaining makes the focus all about us and worship makes the focus all about God. See, Paul understood this when he said in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned, listen to this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. He says, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want that testimony because right now I know how to do a lot with a little. I want to try that. Uh, I, I want to I learn how to do it with a lot. But listen, Paul believed that when things are going well and when things are going wrong, God is still worthy to be praised. Because in spite of the highs and the lows, Paul understood that God has saved his life. And if he did nothing else, he's already done everything. 
but he believes that the God who saved his life will also be the God who gives him strength in those hard moments. And if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in what Christ has done for us on the cross, then you and I have everything we could ever need because our souls are safe in the arms of a holy, merciful, gracious, and good God. Our God saves, and he is worthy to be praised. But I want you to see this, and this is so important, because David is, David's given you these reasons as to why God is worthy of worship. And he starts by saying, because God is still at work, but because God is a God who saves. But I want you to see this, and this is so important. David understands that ultimately, God is worthy of worship, not because of anything that he has done, but because of who he is. Oh, we've got to get this. Because look at what he says there in verses 4 through 6. This is, this is the grounding of the argument. He says, for the Lord is great and highly praised. Not because of what, what, he, what he does. He just says, for the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Hear me, church. God is beautiful. God is splendid. God is majestic. God is strong. God is good. God is kind. God is merciful. Not because he did anything for you, but because he is God. And that alone is a reason to praise. Our worship of him is not ultimately based on what he does. Our worship of him, if it is going to be lasting worship, has to be based off of who he is. Because even what he does is meant to point to who he is. God shows grace because he is gracious. God shows love because he is love. You see, on a human level, I think we get this. I really do think we get this on a human level. I love my wife. I love her, okay? I cherish her. I value her. And not necessarily because of what she does, but just because of who she is. Yeah, I, I just like my spouse. How much more should this be the case with God? God is good and gracious and kind and loving, and God is worthy simply because he is God. I think you and I would, would do well to maybe spend some time in our, our prayer lives just praising God for who he is. I mean, I know it's easy to praise God for the things. God, thank you that you made me feel better. God, thank you that you allowed me to get that job. God, you are good because you saved my friend. That, that, that thing worked out the way I wanted to, but how often do we just spend time praising God even when things aren't going our way because God is just God. He is worthy. We worship because God is worthy. But here's the second truth I want you to see this morning. We worship in community. We worship in community. You see, something, something significant happens in this song. It begins in verse 1 and 2, uh, by, by, you know, it, the psalm begins in verse 1 and 2 by David calling us to sing to the Lord. But something really interesting takes place in verse 3 that I don't know that we always catch. A shift takes place, because notice what he says in verse 3, declare his glory among the nations. So in verses 1 and 2, you're singing to God. 
But then in verse 3, the audience shifts. And he says, declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous work among all peoples. And then we see it clearer in verses 7 through 9. David writes this, he says, Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, bring an offering and enter his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, let the whole earth tremble before him. You see, in this song of praise, David sings to the people of Israel in order to call them to join in with this declaration of praise. And the reason for this, this is so important about worship, the reason for this is because worship, though there is definitely a private aspect to it, worship by and large is meant to be done in the community of faith. On November 23rd, 2014, this was just a few years back, 2014, a man named Frederick Winkingson, it's a great name, Frederick Winkingson. He walked into the Philadelphia Academy of Music and took, in, took a seat in the second row for a concert. It's a true story. Now, normally, the Philadelphia Academy of Music can seat 2,509 people. I looked it up. No one else was there. No one else was in the auditorium. And after about 10 minutes of this man just sitting there, the lights dimmed and out walked Bob Dylan and his band. And for the next little while, Frederick was alone in a theater that seats 2,509 people being serenaded by not only my wife's favorite artist, but his favorite artist as well. Can you imagine? Some of y'all are like, who's Bob Dylan? (laughs) You have homework, okay? Go, my wife, talk to her. She'll tell you the best Bob Dylan songs to go listen to. But, but can you imagine that picture? This one person sitting in this auditorium, auditorium and, and Bob Dylan goes through this set with his full band for this one man. No one else was there. I think that's how we often view worship. That it's just us on stage by ourselves singing songs with God by himself sitting quietly in the audience listening to this audience of one. Or listening as an audience of one. I don't know where that statement originated. But we've heard it said often in church settings that we're singing to an audience of one. I remember one time I was preaching uh, for a friend at, at, at his church uh, where he pastored. They invited me to come preach. This was a while back. And right before I walked up to preach, he whispered to me, Pre- preach the word. Now, I'm used to hearing that. That's God. Yeah, thank you. Preach the word. But then he said, and remember, you're preaching for an audience of one. I remember thinking, no, I'm not. If I was preaching for an audience of one, I would have just sat at home in my pajamas and said the sermon out loud in an empty room. I'm preaching to people. I'm preaching for people. Yes, for the glory of God, but I'm preaching for people as well. Now, I know the heart behind the sentiment. The heart behind the sentiment is that only God matters. When it comes to our worship, that don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about what other people are doing. That only God matters. The problem is the Bible doesn't necessarily teach that about worship when it talks about worship. Ephesians 5 verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. I think that's talking about the corporate worship because I don't know, if you come up to me on the street and just start singing to me, I'm probably going to walk away. 
But I think this makes sense in the context of the gathered body singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us, plural, us, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for the building up. Did you notice the hymn included in that? When we sing, it is not only for the glory of God, but it is meant for the good, the building up of our brothers and sisters around us. You see, while our worship is directed at God, it is meant to encourage our brothers and sisters around us. You've probably experienced this. Perhaps you've been struggling with something. Maybe I'm telling your story right now. Perhaps you've been struggling with something and your heart did not want to be in this place. Maybe it was last week and and, and you did not want to sing these songs of praise. You did not want to, to, to cry out to God. You were just hurting. And then, then you look and you see your brother or your sister around you. And you know that they're going through it even more than you are. And yet their faithful praise spurs you on to worship God. You ever been there? Or perhaps you've seen the joy of someone who is celebrating what God has done. And their praise mixed with what you know God has done in their life, causes you to remember just how amazing God is because of how amazing He was to them. You ever been there? I know that just this week, I was moved to praise God by the worship of a saint who I've never met before in my life. Because a week ago, a fellow pastor in Tennessee, he's a man I've met a couple times, 47 years old. He was found unresponsive by his mailbox. He was rushed to the hospital and put on life support. Just two days ago on Friday, he passed away. And I read the post by his wife that she posted under his account. How she believed, even in the midst of all of this, that God is good and kind and worthy of worship, and that she testified that God had been working in this situation and that God would continue to work even though her husband was no longer with her. And in the midst of her praise, all I could do was just stop and praise God in that moment. There's something about the people of God praising God together. But on the flip side, do you know how much pain can be caused? When the body gets together and is supposed to be praising God and just doesn't want to, how discouraging that can be. Listen, some of y'all know this, but I used to be a worship pastor. I say used to because in light of what we got going on right now, I'm not even going to try to hold, hold my own with our faithful brothers and sisters. Amen? You shouldn't have said amen there. You should have said, no, nah, you, you're good. But I can tell you as a worship pastor, and I'm not going to put Chris on the spot, there are times when we look out leading worship and we are just so discouraged because our brothers and sisters like, look like they would rather be doing anything and everything other than this. But I want you to hear me that our worship, the worship that takes place as a community, it matters. There is something sacred. I choose that word intentionally. There is something sacred about the gathering of believers. There is something powerful that happens when we worship together our God who is worthy. To be frank, I don't know how believers could want to be anywhere else but here when these doors are open. Well, perhaps I do. 
You know, just yesterday, the pastors were meeting, and we were talking about some other situation. We weren't necessarily talking about this, this topic or worship, and Pastor John brought, brought up a really great point when he was just speaking about kind of Christianity. He mentioned how there is a temptation for believers to compartmentalize the gathering rather than prioritize the gathering. And I think he hit the nail on the head with that. And what he meant was that there's, there's a temptation for us to see this as just another event that takes place in our week on scale with, on the same level as going to work, going to the park, going to the t-ball game, going to the friend's house. And so we just put this in this n- another compartment of our life. But when we understand the weight of what takes place in, in, in this moment, in this place, There's nothing sacred about the building. There is something sacred about the people of God gathering together to praise God. When we prioritize that, man, our worship will start to change. The more we realize that our God is worthy of worship, the more we will prioritize our opportunity to worship, whether that is a public or a private opportunity to worship. But our worship affects the community as a whole. But David goes on even further. Not only is our, is our worship horizontal and that it's, or in vertical and that it's to a God who's worthy, it's also horizontal and that it's for the community, but David takes it a step further and says it matters for our witness. This is, this is the third truth that I want you to see this morning. We worship for missions. We worship for missions. Look at verses 10 through 13 again. David says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his faithfulness. Notice how David is calling the people to not only worship God, not only worship him in community, but to let that worship spill out in the world. He says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper begins with this statement. It's a great book. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's only a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. Did you catch that line, though, that missions exists? Because worship doesn't. Specifically, he's talking about the worship of God. Missions exist because the worship of God doesn't. You see, what David is declaring here in our text is that a worshipless world needs to see a worshiping people. When you think about it, that's exactly what evangelism is, is it not? It's proclaiming the truth that we know about God, the same truth that we sing about in here and celebrate. It's about taking it out there and saying it out loud to a world that needs to hear it. Understand this, please. Your faithfulness in the midst of a lost world will only be as strong as your worship. 
Let me say that again because that's very important. Your faithfulness in the midst of this lost world that is out there will only be as strong as your worship because the call is for us to worship and then to flood that world with our worship. If you want to be salt and light, worship all the time. If you want to be a witness and see people come to know Jesus, worship all the time. If you want to see injustice cease and righteousness reign in the lives of people and the broken systems of this world, worship all the time. In other words, as the Bible says, whether at home or away, you make it your aim to please Him. The Lord will work through His people by the power of the Spirit to take worshipless creatures and make them worshipers, and we will see sin in this world begin to dissipate as people are brought from darkness into God's marvelous light. But it begins with us being worshipers. Evangelism is not a strategy, it's worship. But even more, the Lord delights in his people when his people are worshiping in spirit and in truth. What we do here in this place cannot stay here in this place. The sacred worship of God's people gathered together is meant to spill out of this place into a world that so desperately needs to hear it. You know what a great example of this is? It's the Lord's Supper. We're going to take it here in a few minutes. This isn't like my smooth transition. I'm not done yet. Just know that. But as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about, man, like the Lord's Supper is a great example because you know that part that we always say because it's in the Bible and it's important that, that whether you, whenever you eat or drink, you proclaim his death and, death and resurrection until he comes? But we only take that meal here in the gathered body of Christ. So how is it that we proclaim? Well, it's, you hear me say it all the time. It's because what we do is meant, to, is meant to refresh our worship for who Jesus is and what he's done for us by dying on the cross in our place. And we are to be so in awe and worshiping so hard the fact that we have been saved by grace that we can't help but step out of this place and continue to worship in the midst of a worshipless world. But again, our faithfulness, our evangelism will only be as strong as our worship. And our worship will only be as strong as our faith. This leads to the final truth that I want you to see this morning. We worship with hope. We worship with hope. Look at verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with faithfulness. You see, the reason we worship, the reason we are glad, the reason we celebrate and we rejoice is because we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he's coming back. We know that God will judge the wicked and that God will reward the righteous. We know that we are only righteous because of what Christ has done for us. Right? That's the message of the gospel. We aren't the righteous because we did all the right things. We are the righteous because of the fact that though we were enemies, though we had rebelled against God, God did something incredible in that he came, he came onto enemy territory 
Not to kill his enemy, but to save them. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, rose from the dead so that enemies and rebels, as we prayed earlier, could be counted as sons and daughters of God Almighty. We know that he will reward the righteous and we know that he will come again. This is our hope. So we worship because we know that God has and always will come through. We know that Jesus came once, and if he came once, he will surely come again. And this should give us hope as we worship. This should give us hope when things aren't going the way that we want them to, to go, because the fact that Jesus coming, is coming back is a declaration to us that this world isn't all that there will be, that there is coming a time when we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There is a time when we will walk those streets of gold. We will dwell in eternity in paradise where there's no weeping, no crying, no sin, no death, no cancer, no sickness, no struggle. That is our hope. And so we worship that God, not because we have everything we want here, but because we get that. But that takes faith. We have to believe. Because here's the thing, and we mentioned it a moment ago, that our worship is only as strong as our faith. And in other words, our worship flows out of what we believe. You see, we don't come in here and worship in order to believe. We worship because we believe. And I need you to know, brothers and sisters, and, I, and I'm almost done, that we are in the, in the midst of a world that so desperately wants you to keep your eyes off of Jesus. This world wants to rob you of your hope and rob you of your worship. I know this to be true. I know it. You don't have to convince me because I see it. I see it on social media. We live in a world that's fixated on the wrong. It's fixated on every mistake. It loves to criticize. It loves to condemn. It loves to point our, out faults and failures. We know more about the lives of people we have never met and what they have done wrong than we do so often about the God we claim to love. And all of this can rob us of our worship. You know where I see it most clearly? I don't know if you're on it. I don't recommend getting on it. Your Twitter is a dangerous place. <laughs> Especially Christians on Twitter. I don't tweet that much. I tweeted the other day. I was like, yo, Christians on Twitter are wild. That was the best I got. I think I said, like, yo, that's the tweet. That's it. That's all I got. Y'all are wild. Because what Christianity has turned into for so many is like, let me point out the flaws of everybody else. Let me bash them. Let me, let me tell you how horrible the church is. Let me tell you how horrible God's people are. And here's the thing, right? What scares me most of all is this growing disdain for the church among Christians. Because I'm going to tell you straight up, yeah, the church has its problems, but it is Jesus' bride. And Jesus does not disdain his bride. He loves his bride. It is our family, whether we want Yeah, we got some crazy aunts and uncles, and they're going to be with us in glory. Don't worry, they'll be perfected there. So will you. But the amount of vitriol and hate towards the church, I just don't get it. Because Jesus loves his church. He knows his church is broken. He wouldn't have come to save it if it didn't need saving. The reason I say all that is because we can get so fixated on this world around us and all the things that are going wrong that Satan can grab a hold of us and we can stop worshiping. 
I wish and I pray that we would be a people who spends more time marveling at God than maligning other people. Because at the end of the day, you and I are made to worship. And God and God alone is worthy of that worship. So let me end this. Let's praise him. Let's praise our God who is worthy. Let's praise him in the valley. Let's praise him on the mountaintop. Let's praise him when things are going well. Let's praise him when things are going bad. Because in every moment, in every season, God is for us and not against us. And God is worthy to be praised simply because he is God. As Psalm 50 declares, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Why? Because he and he alone is worthy. Brothers and sisters, sing to the Lord alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do declare this morning that you and you alone are worthy. And it is so easy for us to get distracted. It is so easy for us to see things in our life and in this world that are not going the way that we want them to go and to think that somehow you've mismanaged or to think that somehow you're not good and you're not kind. But God, I pray, even now in this place, that our, our love for you would first and foremost be grounded in who you are. You are a good God. You are a God who saves. You are a God who is love, who is mercy and grace. You are good and worthy of worship. God, I pray this prayer often for this church, and you know it to be true, and I don't always pray it out loud, but I, I pray for some of us, God, that you would break, break our pride that makes us think we have to look away in worship. I pray for some of us, God, you would break our embarrassment that makes us think we're unworthy to praise you as we should. God, I pray for us as a body that we would worship without shame because you are worthy. And remind us, God, that if we don't like worshiping now, we're really going to hate heaven because the songs will never cease. And nor should they. Holy, holy, holy is your great name. It's in that name we pray. Amen.